When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 103 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Boldfoot Socks. They're 100% American made and 5% of all of their proceeds get donated to veterans charities. Matter of fact, Boldfoot Socks is family and veteran owned. And if you log on to boldfoot.com, you can check out all of their styles. And there are tons. Boldfoot Socks even has a Sock of the Month Club. And they offer three months of free, wait for it, sock insurance. If your socks rip, tear, or develop holes, they'll replace them, no questions asked. They've got dress socks, casual socks, argyle, chevron, digicamo, patriotic, stripes. They've got polka dots. They've got premium solids, collections, three packs, gift packs, and so much more. You've got feet, they need socks, and why not buy them where they were grown and sewn? Right here in the good old U.S. of A. Support a family-owned and veteran-owned business. Just log on to boldfoot.com. And before we get to this week's guest, George Pendergast from Dishwalla, I want to remind you that Facebook is getting rid of their podcast integration. Their parent company, Meta, said they're moving in a different direction. So if you're listening to this episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast on the Facebook mobile app, if you like the Mistress Carrie Facebook page and the podcast episodes just generate automatically, make sure that you subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast through whatever service you would otherwise listen to podcasts. There's a whole list of links at mistresscarrie.com. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. Okay, I had a chance to sit down with George Pendergast from Dishwalla. And it was on the day that the band's new EP was released. It's called Alive. And you would think that George would be out celebrating with the band. But he was at home with COVID. So we had a chance to talk about the recording of the EP. We talked about 90s music and touring and songwriting and inspiration. George is also a drum instructor. And we talked about how he was able to keep teaching classes through the pandemic digitally. He talked about the new challenges in music dealing with the pandemic and how the band's career was affected by the changes of technology back in the late 90s. We had a great conversation. And if you're a fan of Dishwalla or 90s music in general, you're going to love this episode. But unfortunately, technology disconnected us at one point in the episode and you'll hear us recover from that too. Nothing's perfect. So allow me to introduce you to George Pendergast from Dishwalla. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturb, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. 
George, hello. Thanks for hello, hanging hello. out with me today. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, congratulations. People are going to hear this uh, a little bit later, but today your EP comes out. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. And you should be celebrating and you're not because you're not with any of the guys in your band right now. Where are you right now? What are you doing? So I'm I'm at home in Santa Barbara. Um, I, I came down with the COVID and... Uh, of course, it was, you know, the week that we we're supposed to play with Soul Asylum in Chicago, one of our best markets. Um, so it, it was such a, like a, a mixed thing because I, I knew what the right thing to do was. But then I also felt guilty, like I was letting my guys down. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, they, they were quick to send me that Pearl Jam, uh, their drummer has COVID. And they went out with two drummers to cover their show. <laughs> so I, I, I feel a little less guilty. Um, and, uh, it sounds like the show went really well last night for him. So that's exciting. I talked to Jonathan Davis from corn on the show. I, ch- I talked to Jeff Keith from Tesla on the show and they said, when it comes to the singer, you got to protect us because you can't do a show without us. But if it's one of the band guys, you can always find somebody to step in if somebody's sick, but you always got to protect the singer. So as the right. drummer, as the spinal tap joke goes, they're going to bring somebody yeah. in to replace you. Well, and the thing that's funny is that, um, Hopefully the guys aren't watching this. The, uh, <laughs> the thing is that I know this, but uh, they're always like, no, we can't get another drummer. I'm like, yeah, you can. <laughs> Don't tell but, them. But let them think that, right? Job security. You want to keep the gig, man. You want to keep the gig. Right. Well, I was excited that I was going to get to talk to you because Dishwalla is one of those bands that has been around now. When I say... 25 years or more it kind of blows my mind that it's been that long yes no it blows my mind too and it it kind of puts my life into 25 year chunks where like it was 25 when it happened around you know and then uh 25 years later i'm here and then i'm like wow so i know what 25 years feels like it's a so long time. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. remember the first 25 because you're a kid and you have no concept yeah. of time or whatever. But right. when you go from 25 to 50, you remember a lot of that. Mo- well, uh, most of it. Well, yeah, yeah, not yeah. that one night. But then you realize <laughs> like, wow, that went by really shockingly fast. Yeah. And then you start worrying about the next 25 because you're like, I mean, yeah, there are people that live to be like 119, but you want the good years. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's what I got a grasp of. These next 25 are the good years. You know, this, this is the this is it to go out and play and, and uh, keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, for sure. And as a drummer, you know, I mean, if we can if we can throw some shade on the rest of the guys in your band, um, you're the one that it's most dependent for you to be physically healthy. Yes. Because yeah. you've got to be able to play the drums. I mean, you know, B.B. Right. King could be in his 90s sitting down in a chair shredding. Right. But it's hard well, to be a 90-year-old drummer. It is. Well, in so many of our peers' bands, you know, I'll go out and play a, a show somewhere, and here's the band that we toured with all through the 90s, and there's some 20-year-old playing drums. And it's because the drummer physically can't do it anymore. And I feel very blessed to be able to say that I can still drum. Um, but you know, I started when I was five and so drumming for me is, it's not, it's like one of the things that I do as opposed to like really having to prep for it or, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm lucky that it's kind of almost just second nature to to play drums, you know? Well, you, you bring up when you started playing drums and I love asking drummers this question and you're a dad, so you can get it from both sides of the equation. I feel like if you're a parent, one of the things that you just pray that your kid doesn't want to do as they get older is play the drums right? because it's so loud and so big and expensive. So what was that journey like? Are you the first drummer in the family? Did this get gifted to you? How did this start? Okay. So I, the story goes that um, we watched Merv Griffin as a family. Um, in fact, anything that we watched, we watched as a family because my dad hated TV. And when I was a kid, I hated that. But as an adult, I'm so glad that he did that because he would only let us watch uh, music or something that, you know, you can watch as a whole family. And uh, so Merv Griffin, of course, they would always have Buddy Rich on. They'd have all these, you know, uh, these drummers and, and, and feature them. And uh, 
and I, you know, uh, I guess I saw a buddy and I said, I, I want to drum. And I was about three. And so they're like, oh, that's, that's cute. And then at four, I said, I really want to drum. And so my mom had some bongos because what was it? The sixties. Everybody so had bongos in the sixties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I would play on these little bongos. And then, um, finally my dad was like, I think this kid's got it. Right. And my dad was very musical. Um, so he went to the local drum shop, Mike's drum shop, and uh, said to the guy who was a very honorable guy who owned the business, my dad's in there with his wallet open wanting to buy a drum set, right? And uh, the owner of the shop goes, you don't buy five-year-olds drum sets, right? And, uh, and my dad said, well, if he wants to play drums, why would I get him a practice pad? Of course, I'm going to buy him a drum set, right? So he buys me a Rogers drum set with Zildjian cymbals something that a pro would want at that, at that age right? or in, in that era. So um, the funny thing is to fast forward a little bit, my dad played bass and um, has this beautiful, you know, bought this beautiful 73 Fender jazz bass, right? Well, he had always told me that uh, as I was drumming, he decided he'd get his bass so that we could play music with each other. And I found the receipt for the bass the other day just the we other the, day? Well, the other day for me is a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. But recently. <laughs> but recently. Well, when, we, when we moved houses. And I found the receipt from Jensen's Music, which is still here. And it was actually about a year before he bought my drum set. So really what happened is he got a bass. He was like, I really need a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I was, I was fortunate to have a bass player dad. And um, that meant right from the beginning of playing, playing with another person, which is probably the most important thing you can do as a drummer is get used to playing with other people. And he would point out where I was supposed to hit my kick drum. And, you know, he was always on me about, okay, tell me where the one is. And, you know, so I had not just support, but like, you know, serious support, like, you know, encouragement every day, are you practicing? And, but it was funny because it was never, um, go practice for three hours. Uh, it was, you feel like drumming today? And I thought that was like in hindsight as a drum teacher now and as a dad and all that, it's like, what a great technique. Instead of saying, go practice your drums and your rudiments. Because then it's like a punishment. Drumming. Right, right. Yeah. So no, I, I had, I had support right from the get go. You um, skipped over the pots and pan phase, which yeah, is like, like where every drummer <laughs> starts. Yeah. And I want you to keep in mind, we were not spoiled. My dad was a Greyhound bus driver. I was not like... I didn't grow up silver spoons. I'm like, hey, give me the best drum set out there. It was a stretch. It was a it was a stretch, and it was it was definitely very unusual at the time. He was probably just so excited that someone else in the family was going to want to play with him. Yes, I'm sure. I know that's what it was. I know that's what it was. And then my mom eventually, um, you know, my dad was in my room with my drums with me a lot. And uh, I think that was part of why we moved the couch out of the living room and the drum set and the bass rig into the living room. And so we took our dining room and kind of that was where we hung out. And then the living room was where we played music. And so did you pass this on to your kids? Are they musical as well? Because it definitely seems like it's a little bit environmental and it, there's got to be a genetic component to it as well. Yeah, there is. And, and uh it's, it's a, uh, the interesting thing with my kids is I, I barely taught them any drums and they both can play drums. And my son just sat down at the drum set and started playing one day. And so, you know, like a, any dad would, anyone that came into my shop when my son was there, I'd say, Hey, check out my kid drumming. And he's tiny, like barely even reached the pedals. Right. And so one day I'm showing him off and my daughter's there and she goes, daddy, you know, I can do that too. Right. And I said, no, honey, I didn't know that. Good girl. And she just lays down this perfect groove. And then um, way early on, I taught them both just two note chords, just to kind of like hear what music sounded like to to move through things and resolve or whatever. And um, so now they, you know, they just, my daughter writes songs and sings and plays guitar and ukulele and bass and keyboards and drums. and, And my son plays almost all of those. Uh, he doesn't like to sing, which I understand because I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Yeah, they're very musical. 
very musical. Yeah. I'm so envious of that because I'm such a music lover myself. But my illustrious clarinet career in the marching band in high school was just cut short because when you love rock music, there's not a lot of hard rock slash heavy metal clarinetting going on. No, and and the saxophone got so done in the eighties; it's not going to come back for a while. Yeah, it's still going to be a while. Yeah. I'm such a lover of music, though, and that was something that I got gifted by my parents really early on. And so I have this theory about, you know, you talk about 25-year blocks of our lives, right? So I have this theory that when you're growing up, you get gifted all this music from parents, the cool uncle, if you have older siblings, and then that's kind of what introduces you to music. But then something happens. There's a day, a line in the sand where you hear a song, a, a, an album, a band or something. And for the first time, that's like you declaring your independence and you go, no, that's mine. Right. So what were those for you? What was the soundtrack growing up in your house? And then what was the band or the song that you went, okay. This is mine now. I've made a decision that I like this. I'm going to say Rush. Wow, good. Yeah, and the, and the reason is that um, everything else had been picked for me before that. Uh, like the um, my drum teacher was really into Tower Power and Average White Band and uh, Pablo Cruz and all these things that, yeah, he basically was picking anything I was listening to because it was what I was playing drums to at the time, or whatever that was in the lesson. And at the time, I, I didn't think much about it. You know, I was it was just whatever my drum teacher, you know, told me to get on vinyl at the time. And uh, um, But then now that I have it still in my collection, I'm like, are you kidding me? I've got Tower of Power and Average White Band Records. Yes. <laughs> so, um, what were your parents I, listening to at home? Well, my, my mom was listening to Elvis and that's it. Um, my dad was all over the place. You know, you'd, you'd be listening to, uh, you know, Man of La Mancha in the morning, Chuck Maggioni in the afternoon, um, the, the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever at night, um, and then some kind of a jazz record, maybe a Shelly Mann record. So it was, his was the whole like all over the place thing. You know, and lots of Eagles, lots of Doobie Brothers, you know, that kind of stuff, the, the California stuff. And, and uh, but then, yeah, somehow, you know, I mean, I, I, I got, uh, I got, uh, I got into punk and I got into the, the first Motley Crue record somebody gave me in eighth grade. And that was mind blowing. Right. And I, I liked the punk because my parents didn't. But the first thing that I went, this is my music. That was definitely Rush. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, after Neil Peart passed away a couple of years ago, when you go back and try, failing miserably, to measure the influence that he had, not just on rock and roll, but drumming in general, yeah. that it would not have become what it was if it were not for him because he was an equal and arguably overshadowing member of the band, not the spinal tap joke that you can just yeah. replace the guy in the back. Right. I mean, even yeah, the Foo Fighters said it when they inducted him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're like, they let the drummer write the lyrics. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, thank God for that, because they let me do that in this band, too, sometimes. Yeah, which, which is not... Not a super common thing, but not all that abnormal either. The drummer never gets the credit. No, uh, -uh no, no, no. And you, and you have to get used to that. And I, I, I've taught a lot of, uh, I've taught a lot of students that are now pros and they'll come to me with this, you know, here I am in this gig and they're still looking over their shoulder at me. I'm like, they're going to look over their shoulder at you for the rest of your life. No matter how accomplished you are, you're going to get in a room with somebody and they're going to look over their shoulder at you. Yeah, I play in cover bands now that I love them. They're dear, sweet people, but they're critiquing everything I'm doing. And I, and I, I just smile and I let them. <laughs> <laughs> and growing up looking at drummers, right, from not only a technical standpoint with, with Neil Peart, but also a performance standpoint. And then you look at a guy like Tommy Lee that just was like, I'm putting my kid on a roller coaster. Let's do this. I mean, talk right. about moving the drums to the forefront. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and it's interesting because having been a drummer or a student from five until whenever, when uh, the band got signed, I was still very much concerned about my posture and how I was hitting and where my things were placed, right? And then we went out and did my first tour and I'm like, oh, oh man, people just want to see me pound the crap out of everything. And then I was like, and this is fun, right? <laughs> so, so I went from, you know, uh, hitting hard and being in a rock band and all that. It, 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 but but then all of a sudden I was like, my cymbals are way up here and I'm I'm hitting like this, you know? And uh, and and it was it was great fun. And you look at the old videos, you could see me, I'm, you know, pounding the crap out of everything. And it is part of the show. And I, I actually, I teach a, um, a rock camp in the summers. Yeah, I was I'm reading not- about that. Yeah. And so one of the things I tell uh, the drummers is if the if the show is seeming a little flat, even if they're not looking at you, start to go off. And it's the funniest thing, because if, if any band, including Dishwall, it seems like they're having a little bit of a dry moment, I'll just start to go off more. And they're not even looking at me. And the next thing you know, they're starting to go off more. And then Rodney does turn around and look at me like like he invented it. You know what I mean? It is the heartbeat of the band. And you do have that power and control over kind of steering the overall sound, even if people don't want to give you the mental credit for it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you talk about, you know, family time around the TV. We all grew up watching the Muppets, man. Animal is the guy. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, talk about an example of of the drummer going off. He's the yeah. he's the only member of the band most people can even name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so when you're growing up and you're and you're realizing you have drumming ability, going from taking drum lessons and having drumming ability to getting in a band that gets signed and then hits the radio the way the Dishwalla is. That is a rocket ship level takeoff that zero to a hundred. What do you remember about that kind of time? And, and how did you navigate that without going insane? Because the band got huge, fast and, and, and huge. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's a few things. One, one is that people think we're an overnight success, but the three uh, or four of us that were, well, there were a couple of us that were playing together since we were 13, 14 years old. And then the next stage was in our, you know, 19s, 20s. Um, and so really, like, if you, if you think of it as an overnight thing, we had been plugging at it the whole time. I mean, even at 13 and 14, we were out playing and winning adult battle of the bands and all this stuff. Um, and playing in our hometown. And then also like, as it was happening, I think sometimes to our detriment, the people inside like agents and labels and management were always like, well, you're not that big. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so unfortunately, I, I kind of feel like it would have been better for our psyche if they were like, you guys are amazing. You've got the number one song, the most played song of 1996. That would have probably given us a little more confidence and yeah, well, what are you doing next year? Right. I don't see the numbers on the next single. So there's, there's that humbling thing. Plus we're from a town where seven bands got record deals in a couple of years. Ugly Kid Joe, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Snot. So it's not like we could walk around State Street like, hey, we're the biggest band in town. It's like, well, we're one of the biggest bands. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it was humbling. Um, Santa Barbara was good about keeping people humble. I think that's why a lot of celebrities move here is you get to just be normal here and, and no one really cares. Like you can, you can walk down the, 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 the street that you grew up on and be all proud of yourself. And, and then uh, your next door neighbor's Michael McDonald's son. Yeah. And so, yeah. Have a, have a good time trying to compare, you know, resumes over at the McDonald yeah. house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no, it, it was, it was, I think it was probably, I would say for me personally, it was probably a little weirder when it slowed down because it seemed like that's what we were working for. Like we're going like this, we're going like this, we're doing this. We're actually, you know what I mean? And then, and then when it kind of, when all the labels sold to Seagram's and then they all sold to Universal and then 900 bands got dropped, that was weird. Yeah. You know, Napster coming out right when our song came out, you know, um, there were magazine articles written about how we were the first band ever with that many plays on radio to not be like a 7 million album seller. And it was because, just because of Napster. 
So I think that part was harder because I almost expected to get signed and have a hit song. But you were, you were in a pocket where it was common. And yeah. it's amazing how music gets, gets huge regionally, right? Like, you know, you talk about the Motley Crue era of the 80s in Hollywood, and it was like there were just all of these bands getting signed, and then you look at what happened in Seattle and all of these bands getting signed, and it's like, you know, the expectation that they could all sustain and that, and that it would never change. You know, right. the 80s never saw the 90s coming. They just always right. thought that success. You know, I talked to guys like Dee Snyder and it was like he said, you know, one minute we were doing what we did. And then we got a, a telegram that said nobody wants what you do anymore. And it was over. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you look at bands. I love and there are so many examples, but. I try to remember a decision that I made at 13 or 14 that I would still be cool with making now. It shocks me the number of bands that got together at that age and wrote songs that still hold up. Like you made a massive life decision in your teen years to get in a band with some of these guys and all these years later, still happy with the decision. Whereas me, I'm like, did I do anything right at that age? Like, I don't think funny. I did. <laughs> well, I know there was one point where one of the members of the band and I, we were, it was about three o'clock in the morning and uh, we, we had just gotten frozen burritos from 7-Eleven. We microwaved them. The middles of them were still frozen. <laughs> so we're eating these half frozen burritos in this broken down van, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the driveway about to unload our stuff at three in the morning back into the house. And we had just, it was a, it was a break from school. I, I want to say maybe a Thanksgiving break or something. And all of our friends, cause we had decided not to go to college. We had decided that, uh, uh, if we're going to college, then we're not working on music. So let's, let's work on music. If it doesn't work, then we'll go to college. Right. Well, now everyone's in their third or fourth year of college. They've got job placement. They're getting degrees. They know they're guaranteed income. Right. And we're like, we live in studios. We're eating a frozen burrito in our driveway, emptying a van at 3 a.m. This sucks. Exactly. (laughs) And I remember we we were both on the same page of how much it sucked. And he said, you know what? If this is all I do for the rest of my life, that's fine with me. That's big. It is. Yeah, it felt the same way. It's a huge thing, I think, in life, right? Not just music, but just in life in general, that if you can find people that you're happy being miserable with, that's mm-hmm. kind of the goal, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point of it? It is. It is. Yeah. And then, and then there's a little bit of that hippy-dippy, do-what-you-love-and-the-money-will-come thing, um, stick at it long enough. Um, yeah, it, it, it really was kind of throw, throw every option out the window. I remember my mom, she's a dear, sweet woman, and she's very proud of me, but she's also practical. And, and she's like, it's very nice that you're doing well with your music, but you should probably have a backup plan, right? And she wanted me to go to City College and get this degree and stuff. And I was talking to this woman that my dad was friends with that was a motivational speaker. And I said, no, my mom really wants me to go to, you know, go to college. And she said, for what? And I said, as a backup plan, as a safety net. And she goes, well, safety nets are for people who fall. Don't fall. Yeah. So, yeah. My mom was a career nurse for her entire life. Like, got her nursing degree in high school and was a nurse. Loved it. Like, life's passion. And always wanted me to get into medicine. And I always loved music and wanted to be in the music business and wanted nothing to do with it. And she's been sick like you with COVID recently. And so I've been the caretaker, right? And I have the bedside manner of a sledgehammer. And I said to her just the other day, aren't you glad I didn't listen to you? Because I would have been Nurse Ratchet. That joke, like I don't have whatever it takes for you to be the amazing nurse you were your whole life. You didn't give that to me. (laughs) And like, I'm so glad, but it's the same kind of thing. Like, this is what I love to do. This is what I want to do. I just hope I don't fuck it up. Right. Right. Well, and, and look at this. 
what a short spin. We already know we've got a short spin. Right. That everyone makes all these grand plans for how their life's going to pan out. Then we have a freaking pandemic. Yeah. And, and more than half of our lives as a, as a world have changed now. Course and, and career and, and finance and everything. And we're having to like, we're having to look at ourselves like, you know, uh, if we hadn't done that other really practical path, we're in the same position. Unless I had gone into medicine, like my mother said, and then I'd have total right. job security right now. Right. Yeah. Medicine, plumbing, and mechanics, right? Isn't Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, boy, did I screw that one up? Because the same thing happened in radio that you talked about that happened with the labels, that everything got so centralized and massive layoffs. And then it got even worse because of COVID. And yeah. so, you know, where there used to be opportunities for those 900 bands that had record deals before, you know, all of the companies centralized everything, the same thing happened with radio, that they realized with technology they didn't need everybody that they were paying. And so they got rid of a lot of people. Yeah. Centralized programming, it just totally changed the industry. Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah, it did. And for, uh, for a short time, I had a radio show called What's New, and it was all new music, right? And it was also supposed to be kind of regionally focused because we have so many artists in Santa Barbara. And it was it was funny because we would have a band on and then we would interview them and then they bring their cajon and their acoustic guitars and play a couple songs. Then we play a track off the CD, right? And then they would go home and everyone's like, this is groundbreaking. I'm like, this is what I did for all of the 90s. This isn't groundbreaking. Yeah. And then, and then right when that got big, the main controller saw that all this stuff was happening. And now all of a sudden we're having just from the label sent in and who they choose to have on. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting because, because you'd like to think that there was that DJ that broke that band. It used you know to I mean? happen, happened mm -hmm. at the stations that I worked at. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what gave radio that amazing power was that local connection with the audience because, you know, I, I'm just outside of Boston, right? I can't yeah. imagine growing up in Santa Barbara. I can't imagine having California weather every day. Bostonians are way too pissed off and angst filled because half the year, fuck mother nature. So our radio stations are obviously the music that comes out of our cities is going to be different. There's right. going to be an edge. You know, you look at yeah. bands like, you know, Jay Giles or Aerosmith or even more modern examples like Stained and Godsmack. There's an edge there that you're not going right. to get from a West Coast band. No, mm -mm. no, I agree. And I didn't understand that until I traveled. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I went to California and I listened to Incubus and I was like, OK, I totally get it now. I listen to reggae in Jamaica and I was like, oh. This makes perfect sense. But trying yes. to understand reggae in a snowdrift can not give you the, the idea that you're trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, exactly. that is what, you know, what makes music that regional component of it and what made radio have that regional component that was so powerful. And I still believe there's a place for it. I yeah. just don't know how the next kind of iteration of radio and, and the music business, how that's all going to work. I think the only way is for the big companies to sell off the signals and have mm -hmm. little privately owned companies start buying up these regional radio station signals again because they're right. going to focus everything digitally. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I don't know either because um, they have really, like you, you mentioned, like the you knew this sound was coming from here. You knew this sound was coming from here. They've kind of decided as programmers, everything's going to sound like it come. It could come from here. Like I went to Seattle and I was like, I totally understand why grunge exists and why it came from here. Because now yeah. I've been here and I understand like you haven't seen the sun in three months. No wonder you're sad. I get yeah. it. No, I mean, Seattle, when it, it sounds like Alice in Chains. Not Alice in Chains sounds like they're from Seattle. No, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Well, you know, a funny thing about that is um, when we were sitting down with our label, uh, what happened was we decided to kind of write a lot of stuff in the, in the studio uh, for Pet Your Friends. And we had some ideas, but we knew that we wanted to, we wanted to just 
make them kind of elaborate on them a little more and, and, and change our, our sound a little bit um, to make it edgier. And, and, we, and it was because our live show was edgy and our recordings weren't. And they're like, you know what? Your guys' live show is edgy. Why don't you bring that into your writing and into your recordings, right? And so we're meeting with producers and we're meeting with the label. And um, they're like, you guys smile a lot. Like, yeah, they're like you're you're uh, you know it's kind of an edgy time, right? I mean, uh, Jane's addiction and Nirvana and all this stuff. And aren't you guys angry about anything? <laughs> like uh, sometimes the surf sucks. And they're like, no, that's not what we meant. Have you um, been to Santa Barbara? <laughs> we're like, um, all of our parents are still married. Um, <laughs> you know, like we we didn't have. We, I'm kidding. Our parents weren't married, but we didn't have. We didn't have that much to be pissed off about, right? Um, I, I joke about how our era in that band in the 90s, because we all hung out together, was like a giant Mountain Dew commercial. If we weren't at the beach having a barbecue, we were up at the river uh, on a rope swing. And, uh, and it, it, was, it was a good time for us. And, and uh, so it, they sent us to Philadelphia. That'll do it. <laughs> Got to inject a little hate into Dishwalla. Send them to Philly. <laughs> Yeah. They throw so, shit at Santa. And it was it was super intentional. We're like, yeah. we gotta get dirt under these nails. Let's send these boys to Philly. So we went and lived there for about three months and did our record there. And I I had personally a very typical experience because I was done before everyone. I got my tracks done in like two weeks. Drummer always gotta go first, man. Two and a half months off in Philly, right? So I'm going to get lunch and I'm standing in this really long line at Tony and Joe's, right? And uh, I get to the front of the line and I said, I think I'll have, he goes, get back in line and order when you're done thinking. <laughs> I was like, whoa. It's a Seinfeld yeah. episode. It's a soup Nazi. It's total that, soup Nazi. That came from a real place. That stuff happens. <laughs> well, not in Santa Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about songwriting. I love asking this question of songwriters because it's a craft I just don't get. I don't understand it. I wish I could do it. Can you give me an example? I don't care about the artist or the genre, the type of music. That's inconsequential. But give me an example of a song from a songwriter's perspective that you think is a perfect example of good songwriting to the point where like you covet it and you go, God, I wish I wrote that. But I want you to break it down for me as to why it's brilliant songwriting. Um, let's see. And it's different than just a song you love because it's the mechanics of it. It's the, it's the blocks of it from, from a trained, educated perspective, meaning a songwriter that you're, you're going to look at the parts different. This, this is, this might seem really generic because I'm not, believe me, I don't even own okay computer, right? I'm not, <laughs> a, I'm not a huge Radiohead fan. I am a huge Radiohead fan, but I'm not, but I'm not like a fanboy. I'm not, or I'm not like a musician going, oh, it's Radiohead, because that's what you're supposed to say. Right. Fake Plastic Trees, I have to say, is a masterpiece. Um, and there's something about it. There's like a symphonic element to it. Uh, there's a simplicity to it. For me, if, if something's simple and still makes you go, <gasps> that that's a great song, you know. It tends to, it, it comes up a lot when I, cause I love asking that question because I've never, other than the Beatles, I've never had anybody give me like the same example because everybody kind of, you know, goes through and filters a song and it's parts differently. But the mm. concept of the, the brilliance of simplicity comes up over and over again. So it's funny that you said that. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, um, there's something that some there's there's more uh, in the space sometimes than there are if you put a lot of notes in them. Imagery too, like when you're when you're when you hear words and you can make your own pictures, even if it's not the ones that the, the person meant when they're writing them. You know. Well, that's the that's the beauty of it is that it's got to be specific enough to conjure an image, but not so specific that it leaves room for me to kind of fill in the gaps myself as the fan. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. On that vein, now, I hate to say it, but like 90s music has like found this new audience and it's become this retro thing. Yeah. And obviously Dishwalla is kind of grouped into that where there's this whole new generation of music lovers that are now yeah. discovering 90s music and the icons of the 90s are iconic to a generation that didn't even, they weren't even alive when this stuff came out originally. How right, has exactly. that been for Dishwalla, like finding this whole new fan base all over again? 
Well, it's for me, it's it's been interesting because I took a little hiatus because of an injury. And then when I came back and played the first show and the curtain opened and I saw all these old people, I was like, oh, who are these people? And I went, oh, they're, they're, those are my people. And then, and then about five years ago, the curtain opens and then there's 20-somethings out there. And it was like, okay, what's this? And then there's 20-somethings that, that no words to songs that weren't the hits, right? And so thank goodness sometimes for those algorithms because they were listening to Nirvana and they were listening to uh, Soundgarden and like, you might also like this, you know? And then now all of a sudden our, our demographic went from mainly women that were our age to 25 to 40 year old uh, men is 65% of our demographic now, which is just a trip to me. And it's crazy because as you said before, Dishwalla was one of the early kind of quote unquote victims of the digital age of music. And yeah. now that digital age as it's evolved is finding you a whole new fan base. It's crazy that it's come full circle that way. It is. Yeah, it is. Was that part of the driving force to wanting to put out a new EP and kind of just put you out know, new music um, just because you've got this whole new audience now? I knew, We knew we wanted to do a new record in 2017 when we did because it started to be um, – are we going to just be the Counting Blue Cars cover band right. for the rest of our lives, you know? Yeah. And blessed to have, to have that. I'm not one of those guys that's like, I don't want to play Counting Blue Cars ever again. I want to play it every time we play. No, It'll never you can hope as a band you get that one song that lasts. Like, you oh. just need one. And the rush of hearing thousands of people say, like children often do in chorus, is like, I'll, that'll never get old. So we did Juniper Road. And that did well for us. And then the, the, the uh, 25th anniversary happened during COVID. And that was going to be our big, it's our 25th. And that's why you're coming to see us now. Right. And so as a band, we kind of did an inventory and said, well, what are people going to want? They're going to want new, new material. And then the label said to us, you know, new material, you don't have to do a whole album. Let's just do this EP and get some stuff out. So it's kind of gone back to the fifties where you can just release a single or an EP. And that's how bands used to do it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so th this label, I don't know, man, they, they were onto something because with Juniper road, they, they asked for the CD rights and we all kind of looked at each other like CD rights for what, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with them? <laughs> and then not only have they sold out of them, we've recouped, and we're now on to the making a profit off of the CDs from Juniper Road. So they came to us with this and said, let's do a limited release CD, uh, sell it with a T-shirt and just, you know, this limited number of things to make it really special. And uh, and I think that that new formula is kind of working for fans and for bands. Because yeah. as a fan, they don't have to buy a whole CD anymore. Yeah. You know, buy one download. Yeah. One song off 20 albums, you buy one download. Hey, huh. Shut I, us off. there was a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> they didn't want us talking about your new release, right? We get to the part that the record company wants us talking about. And the, and the computer's <laughs> like, no, you're not going to talk about it. What is this with technology ruining my career again? I know, right? <laughs> Although I got to be grateful for it because, you know, especially through COVID, it allowed me to keep working. It's amazing, right. you know, how yeah. small this gear is to be able to, you know, I built my own studio. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I was able to keep teaching drum lessons during COVID, which was, you know, all through Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got the you got the new EP out and and, you know, you're celebrating your 25th anniversary a little late. A little late. Yeah. But you're going out on the road once you're done with all of your COVID stuff. You're actually going to play down in Vegas on Fremont Street at the Fremont Experience, which is always an interesting experience. Such a great show. The last time we played there, I was it was just shocking because I typically as the drummer, um, the drummer from Goo Goo Dolls calls it anonymityville horror. <laughs> <laughs> I can play a show and I could just walk back to my room. And so I got off stage, hung out a little bit in the backstage area. And I don't know if you've seen the, the Fremont thing, but when, uh, when bands are playing, you can't move. Yeah. Like, oh. and so I looked at this crowd and I'm like, I, usually I can get through here, you know, not a very big guy and <laughs> man, no, uh, -uh. Hey, Hey. And then just 
this huge amount of people. It was it was mind blowing, to be honest with you. A free concert where they sell five dollar liquor drinks on the street in Vegas. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. It is. (laughs) But bands love playing it because it is that kind of. Like it's unpredictable. It's about as as rock and roll live on the edge of your seat as can be because you're thrust oh, into the man. middle of Vegas. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's kind of a dream gig to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to be able to like. I mean, it, it's weird to talk about because you're you're dealing with COVID right now, but for bands to actually finally be able to go out on the road. Yes. Having weathered this, you know, isolation, the shutdown of the industry, trying to figure out income and revenue streams and keeping your families fed. And I mean, there are, you know, we were talking about like healthcare. They're not going to be out of a job, but I think entertainment more so than any other industry got hit the hardest and is going to take the longest to recover. Yeah. And to be honest, I've, I've only done, one show since COVID. Uh, it was in Carrollton, Texas. There were probably ten or twelve thousand people. Um, it was an awesome show, but uh, even that was weird because they no one was masked anywhere. Yeah, and it was during during California's mask mandates and other states too. And uh, I'm still it's still interesting to me to see how it's going to go with you know with being out amongst all the people, but. Uh, yeah, we as a band, we've decided that it might be normal to have to find a replacement for anybody except for the singer, obviously. Right. Um, because this is just our new norm that somebody might have COVID, and, and uh, you can't go canceling all your shows every time someone's got COVID. I know that sounds crazy to say out loud, but you know we're just that's kind of where we are. It's either it's it's either change careers, don't work anymore, or figure out how to work in this new environment. You know. And it, it's something that I think, you know, the singers have always had to worry about bronchitis, the flu, a sinus infection, an ear infection, whereas maybe some of the other band members, you know, well, if you got the sniffles, you can still get behind the kid. It'll be miserable. There'll be snot everywhere, but you can still play. Right. Well, and there, there was a part of me that was going to go, um, I was still going to go and do the show. And then we started realizing that, you know, we're thinking about us and doing a show and we're not thinking about the other people Yeah. and the cast and crew of the other, you know, traveling group. Uh, do they want me there <laughs> with my COVID backstage, you know, with my mask off on stage playing? No, you know, and, and uh, so you have this kind of responsibility to everybody else aside from your own health, you know. And it's, it's something that comes up a lot on the show that, it gives you perspective on the relationship with the fans, right? That mm-hmm. that feeling that when you did get to play that show in Texas and you finally got to do what you love again, it really makes you understand how much you love it because it got taken away for so long. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And getting yeah. it back. However, we got to get it back. We just got to get it back. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We got to get it back for us and for our needs. It's so good as a... a it's just people need this. They need to get together. Number one, music is one of the most healing things on earth. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, we do all need to get back to it. The players and the, and the listeners and the fans and stuff. Yeah. And rock music seems to be this amazing um, example of like tolerance and inclusion all of a sudden. You know, I call us the land of misfit toys where the rock fans didn't belong anywhere else. So we made our own party that no one else wanted to go to. And now we're kind of showing everybody that like, no, we want the weirdos that don't fit. Like maybe the world could use a little bit more of that example from us for a change. Yeah, I think so. I think so for sure. Well, I've I've always thought that uh, rock was where the misfits thrive for sure. You know, we don't need you at our party. We're fine without you. You know, right. we can be weird over here together. It's totally fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Hopefully you are on the mend and feeling better and able to get back out on the road soon and, and finally be able to play, you know, new music live in front of crowds again and, you know, quote unquote, get back to normal. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And yeah, congratulations on the release of the new EP. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, George. Have a great rest of your day. You too. 
There he is, George Pendergast from Dishwalla. Their new EP, Alive, is available everywhere. And you can hear songs from the EP on the corresponding playlist for this episode. It's linked in the show notes. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, and it's filled with my guest music and all of the music that we reference in the interview. You'll also find all of George Pendergast's links and the links to find Dishwalla online. And you'll find my links there too. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. It's available everywhere. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. And just in time for the holiday weekend, check out the new Mistress Carrie tank tops. They're available in the online store at mistresscarry.com. While you're on the website, you can also check out my blog, my concert calendar, my photo galleries, and so much more. And join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.